0: Welcome to the Purdue Commercial AgCast, the Purdue University Center for Commercial Agriculture's podcast featuring farm management news and information. I'm your host, Jim Mintert, director of the Purdue Center for Commercial Agriculture. And joining me today is Nathan Thompson, who's an assistant professor of ag economics here at Purdue. And today we're going to talk about the corn and soybean outlook in light of USDA's November crop production and world ag supply and demand estimates that was released on November the 10th. And, you know, Nathan, it was a surprise. I think uh, everybody in the industry was surprised. They reduced the corn yield estimate um, down to 175.8. I think people expected to see the corn yield coming down, but it came down a little more than most people expected. Probably the biggest surprise was the boost in exports. Again, I think everybody was expecting them to boost the exports, but they boosted it by more than, than their trade was expecting. They boosted it by 325 million bushels. They did drop the feed usage a little bit to seven, by 75 million bushels, but the result was a projected corn carryover into the 2021 marketing year next summer down by 465 million bushels compared to what they were forecasting just a month earlier. And so it was one of the more surprising uh, world ag supply demand estimate reports I've seen in a long, long time. And if you look at the numbers, um, you know we mentioned the corn yield came down. It was down 2.6 bushels per acre compared to October. Um, that's a pretty large in- decrease at this time of year. You normally don't see that large of an adjustment this late in the year. That 175.8 pulls us below, a little bit below the trend yield, at least the trend yield that I estimate going back to the mid-19, uh, mid, yeah, mid-1990s. Um, but if you look at it, it's not a low yield number. I mean, if you look at recent history, it's really not a low number. It's uh, not record high, but uh, this is not a drought scenario where we've seen a big shortfall in in corn production, right?
1: That's right. Yeah. I think, and we'll see that again when we look at the total production numbers.
0: And I think you took a look at the state estimates, which were pretty interesting.
1: Yeah. So, you know, the, you know, total yield for corn came down 2.6 bushels in in that kind of was, was felt you know pretty uniformly ac- across the, the corn belt states with you know uh, decreases two, three bushels uh, across a lot of those states. And again, I think a lot of that had to do with some of the late season dryness that we saw. And again, we'll, we'll talk about soybeans here in a minute and that, that change was even more pervasive than what we kind of saw for corn at a state level.
0: Yeah, it was interesting, you know Illinois came down, Missouri, Iowa, uh, Wisconsin. Uh, Indiana did not change. Minnesota did not change. But other than those uh, states, really uh, pretty widespread reduction in, in, in from the kind of the northern half of the country. Um, southern states where the corn acreage is smaller, there was largely no change. And as you look at the corn production number, you mentioned this a, a little bit ago, 14.5 billion bushels. Um, that's down 215 million bushels compared to what USDA was forecasting a month ago. But again, when you look at the numbers, uh, that's not a small number, right? I mean, that's uh, uh, looking at the last, what, five years or so, it's the third largest corn crop of the last five years. So again, this doesn't look like a short crop scenario. And yet we've seen a very positive response to uh, the, the reports the other day. That's right. So, one of the things that's interesting is how people were expecting to see these reports play out versus what they really did. And I think you took a look at that.
1: Yeah. So when you look at kind of where um, the production number came in relative to what the trade was kind of uh, expecting, uh, you know, it's the, the USDA number came in even below the lowest trade expectation for that um, uh, corn production number. And so that is where we get this kind of level of surprise that you mentioned. And so, you know, it was we we all maybe thought that those yields were going to come down, you know, obviously reducing overall uh, production. But the size of that was just a little bit, you know, uh, more substantial than I think anybody was really expecting. And again, we saw that reflected in kind of how the futures market responded uh, to the report with corn being up, I think, 17 cents or something like that, Um, you know, Tuesday afternoon, after the report came out.
0: Yeah, and it's really interesting because there's been a fair amount of research on how markets respond after reports, and I think, you know, I participated in some of that research, looking at uh, how markets respond to um, the livestock inventory reports. Uh, I know some of the folks at uh, the University of Illinois have done several studies looking at how markets respond to um, unanticipated information, and, and the conclusion is generally the same: markets don't change very much if the market uh, was widely expecting the information on the report. It's when you get a surprise. And this clearly was a surprise. When you look at those industry expectations, the production values or production numbers were smaller than expected. And boy, the markets reacted almost instantaneously. So that kind of confirms the idea that this was not anticipated information. The other big surprise was the corn export numbers. Corn exports forecast uh, 325 million bushels, more than what USDA's are forecasting just a month ago. And interestingly, that's record large corn exports at 2.65 billion bushels. Our previous record was a little bit short of 2.5 billion bushels. Um, and of course, a lot of that is tied to what's going to happen or could happen uh, in China, right? I think. Uh, That's really the driver here as China continues to try and rebuild its livestock inventories. So it's gonna be interesting to see how that plays out uh, over the course of the winter and into the spring. And uh, maybe the other factor there is gonna be what happens with respect to weather conditions in South America, because one of the other key variables here could wind up being um, second crop corn production in Brazil. That could be a competitive factor that, that plays into this as well, but still a pretty optimistic corn forecast. And I have to say, coming into this report, USDA already had a, a fairly healthy increase built in compared to last year, and they just bumped it up a lot. So that was, that was interesting. And as you look at the corn ending stocks, to me, Nathan, it's interesting to look at these numbers over just the last several years. Uh, at the 18 corn crop uh, marketing year going into the 19 crop marketing year, the carryover was 2.2 billion bushels. The 19 crop coming into the 20 crop roughly 2 billion bushels. Now they're projecting that carryover to be 1.7 billion bushels. So that's really drawn down that corn inventory uh, level uh, from year to year in a relatively short span of time. And I think, you know, unexpected again by the trade and, and by all of us looking at this, uh, these numbers coming into the report. If you look at USDA's ending stocks estimates since June, And keep in mind, of course, USDA releases these World Ag Supply and Demand Estimates every month. If you go back to June, USDA was forecasting 3.3 billion bushel carryover at the end of the 2020 marketing year going into the 2021 marketing year. They pulled that back a little bit in July to 2.65 billion bushels. In August, they were at about just not quite 2.8 billion bushels. And then since August, it's been coming down every month. And this month, that ending stocks forecast going into the 2021 marketing year is 1.7 billion bushels. So we've gone from a forecast of 3.3 billion bushel carryover back in June to now the forecast is just 1.7 billion bushels. That's a huge change in a short span of time.
1: Yeah, so I mean, you're talking about nearly half, right? And, um, you know, I think when I look at this, one of the things that that comes to mind is just, you know, the difficulty of forecasting some of these things and, and the challenge that that presents and, and the, the risk management kind of implications of that for producers and farm managers as we think about, you know, um, you know, when these, these sorts of things have impacts on, on uh, kind of the prices that farmers are going to receive. And so being able to, to, you know, manage the risk and the volatility that we see in markets today is extremely important because there's just a lot of uncertainty out there yeah it
0: really speaks to this idea that you you really can't forecast accurately enough to bank too much of your marketing strategy on your forecast. Hmm. It really speaks to this idea that you've been talking about for a while with respect to identifying a portfolio of marketing strategies and thinking about how you might allocate your annual production, your annual marketings uh, based on that portfolio strategy. And so this the risk that uh, this chart kind of illustrates this uh, looking at these ending stocks forecast, and how much they've changed going back to June. I just think that kind of drives that point home. It's very, very difficult in markets where you have inelastic supply and inelastic demand to have price forecasts that are very accurate. And as a result, that's why you need to have a risk management strategy that that helps you manage that uh, effectively for your operation. Well, as you look at those corn ending stocks, I always like to look at those relative to total usage so I can kind of scale things in a way that allows me to look at it over long periods of time. And when we do that for this current estimate from USDA, that puts the ending stocks as a percentage of total usage down to just 11% of usage. And if you look at the last, uh, what, four or five years, we've been in that 14 to 16% um, carryover percentage uh, as a percent of usage. So that's a considerably tighter than recent years. It doesn't take us quite all the way back to where we were in that 2010 to 2013 timeframe when we actually had the ending stocks as a percentage of usage below 10%, but it gets us close. And this is the tightest ending stocks since the 2013 uh, crop marketing year, which is really pretty interesting if you think about it in terms of prices. USDA did raise their price forecast. Their marketing year average price forecast went up 40 cents a bushel from 360 to $4. To me, Nathan, the interesting thing about that is when I go back and think about that carryover uh, as a percentage of usage, and we're a little bit above where we were in the 2013 marketing year, the marketing year average for 2013 was 446. Um, If this tightens any more, uh, you know, If we have a usage that's maybe a little bit better than what USDA is suggesting, um, that suggests there might be some upward potential here. Uh, and of course the flip side of that is if they're wrong and, and we don't see the exports materialize, it could go the other direction. But it does suggest that we're kind of on the verge of something here with respect to some movement. And uh, The market reacted pretty strongly, yes, uh, following the report. It's going to be interesting to see how that shakes out going forward. Um, You've taken a look at a a topic that I think uh, a lot of our listeners are probably very much interested in, and that is what should we be doing with this crop? You know, are there some storage opportunities? Uh, Why don't you kind of walk us through that a little bit?
1: Yeah. So, you know, there's a number of different ways that we can look at this. And so we'll kind of just maybe talk through the sequence of things that that might be useful to be thinking about as it relates to this idea of, you know, uh, storage opportunities. You know, maybe we should be pricing some grain right now. So the first thing that I kind of looked at that I think is is just a, a really simple but useful way to think about, you know, what the market's telling us from a storage perspective is looking at some forward contract bids at, you know, just a local elevator in north central Indiana And, you know, looking at those bids throughout the storage season. And, you know, when you do that, uh, you can see that, you know, right now, uh, this week, where those bids are currently sitting, um, those forward contract bids are not really, uh, well, you know, between now and the end of the year, they're, you know, around break even, maybe some some uh, potential to earn some, some positive returns above you know the storage cost that you're going to incur to store it through the end of the year after the end of the year you know getting into uh, January and through the rest of the marketing year you know we see that those current bids are, are really not even enough to, to offset you know uh, what we assume as storage costs which is one cent per bushel per month of on-farm storage costs and then an opportunity cost um, on those bushels of 6%. And so really, you know, th- these forward contract bids, again, are just one way to look at it. But built into those are, are kind of the two components that I want to talk about here in a second. And that is, you know, the, the carry in the futures market, right? So the, the spreads between uh, uh, kind of nearby and more deferred futures contracts. And then also kind of basis. And, and we'll talk about that as well.
0: You know, Nathan, the other thing I think about when I look at some of your analysis here. Um, starting off here in November with a cash price bid of about $4.20, if, if, if um, a producer is really facing the cost structure that you identified, which was that one cent per bushel per month cost of, of keeping corn in an on-farm storage situation, and then your opportunity cost essentially assumes that people are borrowing money from a, from a commercial lender at, at a 6% annual rate. The implication is that if you're gonna hang on until July you'd need to get 445 to be indifferent to the 420 that's being offered today. And I think that's a computation a lot of us don't routinely make, right? I think we kind of forget about the fact that hanging on to corn like this, keeping that money invested in the corn and absorbing some cost in the, in the form of uh, you know, maintaining the, the bins, uh, maintaining the moisture level, um, some shrink, uh, those are all real costs. And so it's important to think about how those two compare. I like the fact that you've kind of looked at that month by month, and it's just kind of striking to think about November 420 equates to roughly the same, given those cost structure assumptions, with 445 next summer.
1: Yeah, um, I, that, that's exactly right, and, and you know it, it's it's really striking, especially where we're at in terms of prices, right? To think about um, you know if you want to hold on to that grain, you know, into next summer. May, June, July. You're looking at you know a, a price that you would need to uh, receive 438, 441, 445. I mean, th- those are those are high prices, right? Um, and so it kind of puts into context some of the the trade-off that we're facing. It also puts into context a little bit the challenge of where we're at in terms of um, kind of what the futures market structure currently looks at looks like, right? In terms of those spreads,
0: which you've taken a look at. You looked at this. Uh, I guess these were the spreads that existed. Uh, really I guess yesterday and they haven't changed too much today.
1: Yeah, I don't think they've changed a whole lot. And so, you know, just looking at um, the the spreads between futures contracts. So, you know, December is trading for 4.25 when I uh, pulled these numbers out. Uh, March was trading for 4.33 with a, so that'd be an eight cent spread. Uh, the difference between the March 21 and the May 21 contract was only three cents. And then, you know, May and July were, were trading for the same price of $4.36. And so, you know, really uh, that sort of uh, spread between uh, those futures contracts is, is not really uh, very wide relative to maybe what we would typically see this time of year. So, you know, the spread between, say, December and May is somewhere 10, 11 cents right now, where we would typically expect it to see, be, see it somewhere more like 15, 20, 25 cents, uh, depending on the year. And so really what, what those spreads represent is the, the incentive that the market is, is giving you to store that grain, right? Higher prices later in the year would kind of be the incentive that you would need to store the grain. Whereas this year, that incentive is just not really strong in terms of what the market is signaling.
0: And you've also taken a look at the basis, which is looking at the crop basis tool on the Purdue Center for Commercial Agriculture's website.
1: That's right. So basis is kind of the other component there that we need to think about. And and so, you know, although the the futures price uh, spreads aren't real strong in terms of incentive uh, for storage, basis uh, this year is really trading, um, you know, right around what the, the historical average is. So in the crop basis tool, if you go take a look, we have two pieces of information in there. One is the historical data that you can kind of select to look at. And so here, you know, we would typically look at a three-year historical average on corn. So the most recent three years, and then, you know, the current year's information is in there as well. And so we can look at kind of where basis is currently tracking in the current crop marketing year. And so since September, um, you know, corn basis is, has been right around that three-year average. And so I think at this point, you know, we're expecting it to kind of follow that, um, Three year average, it tends to be a little more predictable than what we would see with futures. And so, um, you know, we, we can use the crop basis tool to kind of build our forecast uh, of what we think basis is going to be. The problem is, as we think about, you know, like a, um, uh, these storage opportunities, is, you know, um, the, the returns to storage that, that we're going to get is number one, those spreads in, in, in uh, between the futures prices is a, is a component of that, like I kind of mentioned. And then increases in basis are the other kind of, um, uh, you know, uh, return that we would receive uh, from a storage strategy. And so, you know, the question is, how much do you think that those basis levels are gonna increase throughout the year?
0: Yeah, and I think from our standpoint, we're anticipating a pretty normal scenario where the basis levels probably increase about like typical, right?
1: Yeah, that's kind of you know where we're at, and again, you know, a lot can happen to change that expectation. Um, but you know, as as of right now, you know, it seems to be tracking where it normally would. Obviously, you know, uh, the export thing I think could could definitely uh, impact basis levels. Uh, basis also tends to get quite volatile as we think about getting into you know the late spring, early summer months. So you know, in the say the you know basically around planning of 2021. Uh, Things can kind of go one way or the other, depending on uh, what's going on in, in for next year's crop, right?
0: Yeah, and so the, the challenge for a, a storage hedger is the problem is the futures market structure isn't providing much incentive. So we're anticipating maybe a fairly typical or normal basis pattern, um, but at least when you compute computed off the nearby futures, the problem is the spreads across the futures contracts are not supportive of uh, really providing much incentive for storage. And you've looked at the seasonality of those spreads. So, I mean, one one possibility would be that the spreads could increase and you could maybe take advantage of that. But you've looked at the seasonality and at least based on normal patterns, that's maybe not uh, not something you'd expect. Is that right?
1: Yeah, not as of right now. Now, and again, it depends on the individual spread that you're going to look at. Um and we, we've spent the most time kind of looking at the spreads between kind of the, the new crop, the, like November soybeans, December corn, and, you know, maybe like a, a May or, or July uh, deferred futures contract. And those tend to kind of widen out closest uh, to harvest, so not October, November time frame. You know, how the other ones, how, how the spreads between other specific futures contracts, I, I wouldn't uh, want to generalize too much in terms of the, how they behave. But in terms of, you know, if you were wanting to make a, a storage hedging decision right now, you know, going straight into the deferred contract would certainly be my recommendation. I don't I don't see the spreads widening a whole lot between now and, you know, well, for soybeans, we're pretty much uh, done with the November contract and then for, for corn, in the next four weeks, uh, I, the, the historical evidence wouldn't support that we're going to see that contract or those spreads between December and more deferred corn futures contracts spread, a, a widen up a whole lot uh, here in the next couple of weeks.
0: So you've looked at uh, some his- history here over the last 30 years to maybe put some of these marketing strategies into some perspective. So let's talk about that.
1: Yeah, so that's, you know, um putting putting some kind of historical context to some of what we've been talking about as far as these these different storage strategies and, and trying to maybe draw out some implications as we think about what's going on this year. You know I, myself and a graduate student uh, as 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 well as uh, yourself, you know did some some research looking at basically you know historical re- returns to storage for some some different strategies here in Indiana. And you know, basically, what we found was that for corn, we looked at kind of these these two strategies, kind of an on-hedged or on-price strategy. You know, essentially, just put the corn in the bin, uh, speculate both on the futures and the basis, meaning you you don't take any position in the market until you sell um, sell the corn. You know, at whatever point in the the storage season that you decide to do that, and then an uh, excuse me, a a storage hedging strategy where you would basically sell. Uh, deferred corn futures at harvest when you had the grain in the bin. Uh, At that point, you've basically, you know, uh, locked in the futures price. And so you're not speculating on futures, you're only speculating on basis and whatever that uh, increase in in deferred basis is, is your gross returns to storage. And so we looked at those two strategies, kind of how they compared. Uh, We got, I think, 30 years of historical data that we looked at. Again, we looked at it as a net return to storage. so we we uh, accounted for some uh, assumed storage costs. again, i I believe it's the same numbers that we talked about earlier, so one cent per bushel per month on in on-farm storage and then a six percent uh, APR opportunity cost. And so when you do that, uh, you know you kind of get uh, a pretty similar pattern you know through the end of the calendar year. So you know from October to December, we see these increasing net returns to storage. Uh, up to about 13 cents per bushel there in December, so that would be 13 cent um, net return above storage costs for both the the on priced or on hedge strategy as well as the the storage hedge strategy. You know, after that, we see that at least on average, again, these are 30 year averages, uh, the the on hedged or on priced strategy really uh, increases at a little bit faster pace than what the hedge strategy. Does And I don't think that's all that surprising if you think about how those two strategies operate in terms of, you know, the on-hedge strategy really has no cap on the upside. Uh, If we have a rally in futures, the sky is the limit as far as the upside potential there. And so we'll talk about in a minute what the year-to-year data looks like. But again, on the 30-year average, you know, we see that um, those on-hedge returns – uh, peak in about May at 30 cents per bushel, so that's 30 cents above storage costs if you store till May on average. Uh, and then, you know, for the the hedge strategy, a little bit lower. So they again are increasing at a little bit slower pace, but you know, and again, about May, we would have net returns of of about 19 cents per bushel.
0: And you've taken another closer look because I would characterize it maybe as uh, looking under the hood of those averages. And then the story is maybe a, a little more clear as to what's going on there.
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, you, you got to be careful anytime you're talking about these kind of long-term averages. And so while it's useful for maybe understanding those patterns, the the, uh, the the values, the means, the averages are can be deceiving, right? They can be skewed by a few really good years or bad years. And that's really what we see. And so if we kind of, like you say, look under the hood of those averages and we just say, all right, we're going to look at – each individual year in the last 30 years that made up those averages, and we're going to impose a time frame just to make it um, a little bit easier to kind of think about. You know, so we impose this time frame of we're going to store from harvest until May. Uh, what do the individual years look like in terms of those net returns for both an on-priced strategy as well as a storage hedge strategy? And what you see is that you know the, as expected, I think the. The on-priced or on-hedge strategy, where you're speculating on basis and futures, tends to be more volatile, right? Higher highs and lower lows in terms of um, those returns to storage. So we have, you know, three years in particular, uh, so 95, 2007, and uh, 2010, where the net returns to storage, so again above storage cost are, you know, $1.50, $2.29, and $1.89, just exceptional years that are really drawing up that average that I talked about uh, just a minute ago. Um, Whereas with the storage hedge strategy, it's it's a little bit more of a a slow and steady kind of strategy, which is exactly what it's designed to be. It's designed to eliminate that futures price risk, but give us kind of a more consistent and and predictable return. And so, um, you know, it rarely produces a negative return to net uh, net return to storage. However, you know, um, it doesn't have as high of highs. Uh, and so in a good year, you know, um, you you would not earn near as much as you would in a good year for an on-hedge strategy. So again, it, it kind of gets at this this idea of the risk return trade-off that we're facing with, you know, um, the, the on-hedge strategy really being the, the more risky of, of the two strategies, but also having, you know, quite a bit of upside relative to the on-hedge strategy. Now, you know, I, I'll i let you kind of maybe share some thoughts. I'll share my thoughts as we think about this year. Right. And and I think that's what's maybe people want to hear is like, OK, well, what kind of year is this year? I don't think we really know the answer to that. But what we've already said based on the the other stuff we've talked about is that, you know, the the futures price spreads are currently not offering uh, a lot of incentive for a storage hedging strategy this year. It's just it's going to be hard to see that being a, a, a really, you know, uh, profitable um, strategy because of of those kind of narrower spreads, which are a really important component of that storage hedging strategy. Um, with that said, right, I, I'm, I'm kind of leaning more towards, you know, um, uh, on-hedge storage. We always recommend on-hedge storage as part of a, a portfolio of strategies, right? If it's something that you can tolerate risk-wise, uh, there certainly is, is upside potential. But if you're going to be storing some corn especially through the end of the year, uh, I see it, you know, storing it on hedge not being a terrible idea. Um, you know, I would definitely say you'd be wanting to pay attention to what's going on. Um, and, and again, be aware of the risk, right? Um, but, you know, it, it certainly could be part of a portfolio.
0: Yeah, I would agree. It could be part of a portfolio. And real the question, I think, on people's minds, is this going to be or has the potential to be one of those years where you see that really positive return to storage. And I think about where the corn market is today, and I look at uh, the analysis you put together and you mentioned those exceptional years with those returns to storage of, uh, uh, in one case, over $2 a bushel, in one case, just a little under $2 a bushel, and in one case, I guess, was a dollar and a half a bushel. You know, the odds of seeing those kind of returns this year is pretty low given where we're at today, right? Where I've already yeah. got corn prices above $4. Um, we're, I don't see a scenario where we push corn up to, um, you know, close to $6. I don't see that materializing. Could we have a positive return to that, that uh, strategy where you effectively speculate on both the combination of futures price and basis? Yeah, we could. Um, but I don't think we're going to see one of those spectacular returns. Um, so, uh, you know, I kind of agree with you. I would allocate some of my corn production towards this unpriced storage strategy. How much I would put into it would probably depend in large part on how much risk I could afford to absorb. For folks that are in a position that really can't afford to absorb a lot of risk, current corn prices are are profitable. Um, That's right. And you're gonna wanna lock in a chunk of that. Is there a downside risk to this corn market? Uh, Sure, I think the downside risk uh, would be that the exports don't wind up being as large as what USDA forecast. We could see uh, from a downside risk perspective, maybe very large uh, South American corn production. That would be a a negative for this corn market. And the third one would be what's going on with the pandemic. Um, You know, one of the big drivers behind corn usage is ethanol usage. And ethanol usage has taken a big hit in 2020 because of the reduction in gasoline usage. And if you think we're gonna be in a severe lockdown mode over the course of the winter, that could drive down ethanol even more. So, you know, there's a risk on both sides. Um, the, the other thing to remember here, I think, is that you know, historically the, the so-called short crop years, and I especially think in, in recent times, the 2012 marketing year is a classic example. In short crop years, um, unpriced storage has not been uh, friendly to the market. Right, um, it has a tendency to generate a negative return because prices tend to peak early. Uh, the old the old saying in the in the grain markets is short crops have a long tail. Right, early peak, long tail as they as they basically go back to uh, kind of the normal uh, pricing pattern. So there's some risks there. And you know the bottom line is, as we started stated at the outset here with those big changes in those carryover estimates, it's very hard to forecast what's gonna happen here with a high degree of confidence. And so you need to recognize that upfront with your marketing strategy. But yeah, there's a potential for a positive return here. I don't think we're gonna see a repeat of one of those really three positive years that you identified over the last 30, but we could see an improvement relative to current situation if the exports continue to improve. Uh, if the pandemic uh, settles down and we actually see gasoline usage uh, recover, and then the third one would be, uh, you know, the flip side of what I said earlier would be to say we have crop production trouble in South America. So, so it's, um, uh, there's enough uncertainty that, which is normally the case, you want to have not put all your eggs in one basket, right?
1: That's right. Yeah. And I think just to reiterate, you know, you know, there, there are opportunities to sell corn, for over four dollars a bushel, that's going to be profitable for a lot of people. You know, don't 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 let that opportunity pass you by. Um, if if uh, you know you can you can definitely sell some corn and, and make some money at those prices. Yeah, and I come back to
0: the, the the analysis you did earlier, where you looked at assuming that one cent a bushel uh, storage cost uh, in on-farm storage plus um, uh, assuming uh, that you're borrowing money at six percent. Uh, with a 420 bid currently. To be better than that, you're gonna need something higher than 445 next summer. And uh, that helps put it in perspective, I think. Uh, Mm -hmm. Those are some pretty healthy prices, uh, particularly given the yields we experienced this fall. So let's change gears a little bit and talk about the soybean side. Um, USDA made some changes to the balance sheet there as well, and they were pretty interesting. They reduced the yield estimate to 50.7 bushels per acre Um, Unlike corn, there was no change in the export forecast, no change in the crush forecast. But that reduction in production does tighten the projected carryover again. And you look at the yield number, you know, that 50.7, again, uh, looking at my trend yield going back to the mid-1990s, that's still above trend, so it's still a pretty strong soybean yield. It's uh, looking at the, the data, I think maybe the Uh, Probably the third highest soybean yield on record. The record was 52 bushels per acre on a national average basis back in 2016. But uh, this 50.7 is pretty darn close to what we were at in in 2018. So uh, and of course, a a, a nice bump compared to last year. Last year, we were just 47.4. You took a look at the state level estimates. And uh, it's a little different than what we saw for corn.
1: Yeah, it is. You know, we, we definitely uh, see, you know, with the, the northern kind of states here, um, kind of across the Corn Belt, uh, seeing a pretty consistent uh, yield decrease. So, you know, where we're at in Indiana, down three bushels, Ohio down three, three um, uh, percent, Illinois down three percent, um, you know, and then Western Corn Belt, even some some uh, states with even, even a little bit higher uh Decreases the southern states. We saw, you know, uh, those uh, soybean yield um, numbers really increase quite uh, quite a bit across uh, most of those southern states. And so, you know, it wasn't really felt the same north and south. And again, that comes back to kind of the late season dryness that we saw uh, across a lot of the Corn Belt, and really, you know, having a, a pretty big impact there on on soybean yields.
0: Yeah, we've been we've been dry in a big chunk of the Corn Belt now for an extended period of time, and it really had a little more impact. On soybean yields than it did on corn yields, and I think the the state level estimates really reflect that. So that uh, pulled the soybean estimate down, right? I think the soybean crop. Can you did you have those numbers?
1: Yeah. So uh, you know the the uh, total soybean production came down ninety eight million bushels, so now at four point one seven billion. So again, you know, up quite a bit from last year, uh, but not quite back to where we were. You know, in seventeen eighteen, more around almost four and a half billion bushels. And then, you know, looking at kind of where that uh, production number came in relative to the uh, trade expectations. Again, uh, similar to what we saw for corn, this is this was really kind of, you know, the surprising part of the report is not only did, you know, they uh, adjust those yield numbers down, but they came in, you know, way lower on that production number, uh, than even the, the lowest trade expectation, uh, as far as what people were expecting. And so that, that, you know, much lower, uh, production number, uh, is really what, you know, caused some surprise, caused some, uh, 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 impact on, on futures markets. I think soybeans were up 34 cents on Tuesday afternoon following the, the report. And so again, uh, just, um, uh the, the, the size of, of that change at this point in the year just ha- had a pretty big impact on, on markets.
0: So when I look at the uh, USDA's estimates versus what the trade was expecting coming in, it's really interesting to trace how that's uh, played out going back to August. In August, USDA was above everybody in the trade. In September, they were kind of in the middle October sort of in the middle, and now they've dropped below everybody. And so you know it just it really is indicative of the level of uncertainty out there and the difficulty there is in terms of anticipating this. And um, you know, I know sometimes USDA gets criticized. You know, if you look at how they do this, it's clearly the most rigorous methodology. So I still think USDA is the gold standard here in terms of estimating these yields but uh, it's still challenging especially when you go think about uh, estimating soybean yields in august and of course we just mentioned the dryness when that august report came out of course that was based on conditions as of august one that was really the the onset of those dry conditions in much of the corn belt and then of course we had the windstorm hit uh, which had some impact on soybeans more so on corn but nevertheless the deterioration weather conditions following that august estimate really does help explain what took place here. And 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 this November report, I think, kind of confirms that, that dry weather had more impact than, than people thought a little earlier in the, in the growing season. So if you look at the projected carryover that USDA has been forecasting over the last few months, a little bit like corn, but even more so, the change has been dramatic. So as recently as August, that August report we were just talking about, USDA was forecasting a carryover from the 2020 marketing year into the 2021 marketing year of over 600 million bushels. They reduced that in September. They reduced it again in October. And here in November, it came down again. And as you look at it, the change is amazing. We go from 610 million bushel carryover projected back in August to 190 million bushels projected here in November. And that is a very big change in the course of just three months. And really, I think kind of turns the soybean market almost upside down if you think about it. Uh, The ending stocks estimate now, when you compare it to to usage, so we can look at it over a long period of time. Two years ago, with the trade dispute and trade war with China, that bumped up to 23% of usage. Last year, as we pulled back on acreage and pulled back on yield, that dropped to 13% of usage. This year, with USDA's latest estimate, it's 4% of annual usage. So a very tight carryover. And that 4% compares to a forecast a month ago of 6%. And if you go back to September, it was 10%. Of course, in August, even higher than that. So we've been pulling down that carryover um, and putting it back at levels that we haven't seen for a number of years. In fact, if I look at the um, recent years, the last time we saw a carryover this small relative to usage um, was really 2013. 2013, we had a carryover of just 3% of projected usage. At 4%, we're pretty darn close to that. So that's a, you know, if you're a soybean, soybean farmer, that's a good news, right? You're glad to hear that, that those stocks are that tight. That sets us up for a potentially explosive kind of a price scenario here in, in um, uh, the 2020 marketing year. USDA bumped up their price forecast again, uh, this time to $10 and 40 cents a bushel for the marketing year average. That's the highest marketing year average since 2013. In 2013, that marketing year average is $13. And keep in mind that that carryover in 2013 was 3% of usage, this time around 4% of usage. So if USDA's forecast on usage, is on target and obviously if their yield estimate their production estimates on target Um, that 1040 could be conservative don't you think nathan
1: oh yeah i definitely think that uh, and we'll talk about some some strategies here again There, there there is likely still some upside there again uh depending on what happens here in the next couple of months
0: so you have taken a look at those soybean bids a little bit like you did on the corn side so let's walk through that a little bit
1: that's right. And so, uh, you know, same idea of kind of thinking through, you know, some of these, um, opportunities that we have for, for soybean marketing here. Um, you know, first starting out with just thinking about those forward contract bids, kind of where they currently sit relative to, um, you know, what, what we would need to receive in order to, uh, to offset our storage costs on some soybeans. And so, uh, with, uh, $11 and 45 cent, uh, cash price available, uh, here, uh, in November, you know, in order to offset that price, you'd need to see a price of basically $12 into July to offset your one cent per bushel, uh, on-farm storage costs, and then, uh, 6% opportunity costs. Um, spoiler alert that, you know, the forward contract bids are nowhere near, uh, that level right now. And again, we'll talk about, you know, how that is influenced by both the, Uh, carry in the futures market as well as kind of where we think basis is going. But essentially, you know, those four contract bids are are well below kind of uh, the projected prices that I have based on the assumed storage costs throughout the storage season. Um, And so really, um, you know, storage uh, um, opportunities on soybeans, the market is really signaling pretty strongly that it wants those soybeans now, right? And so it just doesn't look favorable when we look at it. Uh, the way we're looking at it right
0: here. Yeah. And a little like corn, I think one of the things that's really interesting about the analysis you did is just comparing the current bid and thinking about what you would have to have in the future to truthfully be better off than that current bid. So, assuming your cost structure, which, you know, that's obviously a critical variable here, but assuming that one cent per bushel on farm storage costs. And assuming that your opportunity cost on money is six percent, which it just basically says that that's what your uh, loan rate is at your commercial lender. If you turn down 11:45 today, you'd have to have something above 11:99 next July. So keep that in mind. I think if you think about your marketing strategy, assuming if if that is even close to what your cost structure is, um, that's pretty informative I think and, and really helpful to think about it that way uh, and of course if you're doing commercial storage it would be even higher than that right uh, so think about that with respect to what you're betting on and so you know if you turn down that 1145 today in and, and expectation to see in a higher price in the future think about what that means in terms of what you need to get to actually beat or be better off than taking that 11.45 today. And so I, I find it useful to think about it that way and maybe to continue to update that value as time goes on and think about, you know, every day. Well, okay, if I'm hanging on, what am I waiting for, right? And so it kind of helps right. me set that that target, I guess, in a way. So you've looked at those futures price spreads. They, they look different than corn.
1: Yeah, so not, uh, you know... Uh, not a lot going. I mean, it's, it, the futures market uh, for soybeans has has seen some inversion for quite a while here in terms of you know those uh, more distant deferred soybean futures contracts trading really, you know, below the the, the, the nearby or or kind of more current contracts. And so, uh, again, as of as of Wednesday morning, you know, uh, November soybeans were trading for eleven dollars and forty four cents. We did see you know, positive, uh, spread there to the January 21 contract at 1156, 56 cents. So, a you know, eight cent premium there, uh, or spread between those two, you know, after that, we see that, uh, carry really declined. So the March 21, $11 and 53 cents. So three cents less than the January, uh, contract may at 1150 and then July at 1144. So again, you know, really uh, a stair step in the wrong direction uh, as far as those more distant contracts declining in value relative to the uh, contract preceding, which is, uh, again, the market giving us a signal that uh, really not a lot of incentive for us to uh, store soybeans right now from a futures market uh, point of view. Yeah, the, the market's not
0: offering any incentive to store per se which effectively means if you're going to store, you're betting on the futures prices going up, right, over time. So we'll talk a little right. more about that later. You've taken a look at the basis. The basis has been kind of a, a, a good news story for Indiana uh, soybean producers here over the last, uh, really over the last year plus, right?
1: That's right. Yeah, we, we've had strong soybean basis really going back to, <clears throat> you know, the spring of 2019 when we had um, some some planting issues, uh, getting getting the crop planted, and that has that strength and basis has really kind of uh, persisted through um, the the beginning of, of this crop marketing year. And so we started out the year with a strong basis. So you know uh, we we have some some information here that we're looking at. You know you can go to the crop basis tool and look at your particular region. But we're, we're we're talking about central Indiana. You know the the basis in central Indiana is. Uh, currently, about 20 cents above where uh, the historical two-year average is. Again, we're using a two-year average on soybeans. That's kind of some some a thumb rule that we developed based on some research that we did. Two years for soybeans, three-year average for corn, and so that three-year average is kind of you know tracking along parallel to um, what the historical data shows, but at about a 20 cent premium. Uh, and so that stronger basis uh, again is is really you know Uh, in a signal uh, by soybean buyers saying that, you know, we're really trying to pull in soybeans um, uh, needing to offer a a higher price relative to futures than what we have this time of year. Historically, you know, we can talk a little bit about, you know, what this 20 cents above the average means for forecasting basis going uh, throughout the the rest of the kind of uh, 2020, 21 crop marketing year. Um, You know, the, the research that we've done would suggest that, uh, you know, if you're looking at, at creating a basis forecast, say in the next uh, eight to 12 weeks, maybe through the end of the <coughs> calendar year, um, you, you know, you'd wanna probably, you know, incorporate that current kind of premium uh, above the average, the historical average that, that is relevant information that is, is likely not gonna uh, deteriorate here in, in the short run. However, if you're wanting to think about basis, um, you know what it's going to be, say out in the late uh, spring, early summer months, maybe May or June or something like that. Um, the research we've done would suggest that that current premium above the historical average is likely to, to deteriorate, and and so going back to that historical two-year average would uh, probably be a better bet, you know. And again. As you kind of track throughout the year, you probably would want to pay attention to what's going on and, and what the current information is telling you. But where we sit today, you know, as you're thinking about looking into the future, that's that's kind of what the recommendation would be based on our research.
0: Yeah, and you might think about some scenarios there or conditions when that might, uh, in fact, be the case. And, you know, if we see um, expectations for good planting progress next spring, we see expectations for um Pretty good yields next spring and early summer. Uh, those would be conditions here in the Eastern Corn Belt in particular. Those would be conditions that would be favorable towards the basis, you know, over time approaching that average, right? That's right. Uh, conversely, if we see something develop here, especially in the Eastern Corn Belt, uh, that would suggest we're having planting season problems, we're having crop production problems, um, leaving us with a tighter than expected supply situation in the Eastern Corn Belt. That would be a scenario where that basis would probably continue to be stronger than normal. So, it depends a lot. But if we on, on what takes place with respect to future production expectations, but um, yeah, the odds would favor that uh, over time, gradually approaching that um, uh, that two-year average. So, you've taken a look at storage strategies as well, uh, a little bit like you did for corn, and they are, in some respects, uh, even more interesting than what you saw on the corn side.
1: Yeah, soybeans tend to be kind of interesting here. And so, again, we just uh, looked at basically historical uh, net returns to storage for both an on-priced or kind of an on-hedge strategy, put it in the bin, speculate on on futures and basis, and for, again, this kind of storage hedging strategy where, uh, you know, you sold deferred futures at harvest and then speculated on basis uh, up until the point where you made the cash sale. And so again, you know, similar to corn, we see these kind of increasing net returns to storage throughout the storage season. Uh, but the levels are, are quite remarkable, uh, at least to me, and Jim, I don't know, you can, you can share your thoughts. But, you know, we see them kind of accumulating throughout the year to the, you know, you get out into June, the 30 year average net return to storage for soybeans in June is 66 cents above storage costs, um, which is just huge, right? Uh, in terms of uh, what that can mean for, for a producer's budget. Now, again, we'll talk about, you know, what the individual years look like here in just a minute, but, uh, the 30 year average, that's, that's quite a, quite a big number. The, the net returns to the storage hedge strategy for soybeans, not, not, uh, not as favorable, um, tends to kind of bounce around <coughs> maybe a dime, uh, and really kind of stalls out, uh, in the, you know, February to May timeframe when, when, kind of coinciding with, with the uh, uh, Brazilian soybean harvest basis in the United States kind of stalls out. If basis is stalling out on a storage hedge strategy and we're accumulating storage costs, uh, you know, those net returns are going to either flatten out or even decline a little bit, which is kind of what we see here. Um, and so, you know, really what, what we have here is kind of this picture of um, uh, really potentially high net returns to storage for, for on hedged soybeans. Uh, in and in a much lower ceiling there for the storage hedge strategy.
0: Yeah, so it, it is interesting. And probably when you did this analysis with um, uh, your graduate student here, this was probably the most surprising thing. Uh, the fact that we came up with this uh, this idea that unhedged storage for soybeans uh, was more attractive here in the eastern Corn Belt than, than perhaps what we realized coming in. So, like with corn, you've you've taken a look under the hood and looked at those year by year uh, data as well, and so it's and it's a different story than what you saw for corn.
1: That's right. It it, it really is uh, quite a bit different when you think about the implication or maybe even the interpretation of of what you see on those thirty year averages, and then kind of digging deeper into what those individual years look like. And so again. You know to look at it at the as uh, at the individual year level, you kind of have to make an assumption on some sort of time frame. And so again, i've I've imposed a May time frame. So you're going to store uh, from harvest out until May uh, of the following year. and again looked at what that has what that strategy or what the two strategies, the on hedged and the the storage hedge strategy would look like in each of the individual years in the last thirty years. And what you see is again, you know, there's there's kind of a, a more volatile um, uh, return to those uh, on hedge the on hedge strategy. Again, not surprisingly, just by definition, you know, by speculating on futures and basis, you're taking on more risk. But really, the surprising piece is the upside potential on that strategy, right? Frequently, we see years. Um, with pretty large positive returns to the on-hedge strategy um, in in, um, much more so than corn. So on corn, uh, I think we mentioned, you know, there was like three years that really skewed that average up. Uh, Whereas with soybeans, you know, there's several years uh, above a dollar, nonetheless, even more than that, above 50 cents net return to storage uh, above those storage costs. And so You know, when you think about the frequency of that strategy offering a relatively uh, positive return, it really kind of changes the way that you think about how you might want to treat that as a a portion of a portfolio of your marketing strategy.
0: Yeah, Nathan, I think uh, that's really interesting. So I did a quick count while you were talking, and I think uh, looking at the 30 years of data, I think, what, 14 of those years? The return to the unhedged storage uh, strategy was above 50 cents a bushel. So, roughly half the time, more than 50 cents a bushel, and several of those years, well above 50 cents a bushel. So, very interesting. So, then I think for our listeners, you know, the question always is well, you know, should I hang on to corn or should I hang on to soybeans? What do you favor? And of course, for a lot of folks, they're thinking about you know generating some revenue with some of their production, you know, which, which side would you want to be on? Looking at the data, looking at these storage returns, thinking about the tightness of supplies, thinking about the downside risk, et cetera. Um, when I think about it, I favor hanging on more to soybeans than I do corn. There's more from a historical standpoint, the odds are in your favor. We've had a number of years where those unhedged storage returns have been very positive for soybeans, so that's a plus. Uh, The soybean um, stocks estimate relative to usage is very tight. Uh, That bodes well for uh, future prospects of of price improvement, uh, particularly if we see anything take place with respect to uh, maybe a stronger demand uh, source than, than what USDA is currently projecting. Or as you get into the spring, if we have any kind of issues with respect to crop production, uh, both in South America and in the U.S. So those are both maybe in in favor of the soybean storage versus corn. So, you know, there's still a lot of uncertainty here and they're both risky. Uh, Both have some element of risk to them. But of the two, it looks to me like odds would favor more positive returns for storing soybeans than corn. Do, Do you agree?
1: Uh, I I agree hundred percent, and I, I just to maybe re. You know, two economists
0: are never supposed to completely agree, <laughs> but I,
1: <laughs> I, I I do I, I think to summarize it maybe a little bit uh, concisely here. You know, based on our research, the histor the, the historical data is on your side uh, from from the soybean point of view. Uh, you know, if you if and let me let me stay, take a step back here. If if the decision is, and I think that we we're in relatively uh an agreement here you know if you're looking at storing some of your crop right now kind of the on hedge strategy is probably what you're looking at just storage hedging this year is just not not looking like a a great strategy so if you're storing corner beans and you're you're imposing the idea that you're going to be storing them on hedged or on price history the historical data is really on your side to, to favor soybeans and when you look at the current information that we have that you mentioned it really is on, on the side of, of soybeans as well, with with you know what looks like some some upside potential. The the only thing I would do, and again, I, I mean this is a good economist, I'd offer my caveats here. And that is number one, if, if you're going to be storing either corn or soybeans on price, you need to be paying attention. And there is definitely downside risk. Um, and then the other caveat that I would give is just like for corn, you know, there are opportunities to sell corn you know, at a cash price above $4, we're looking at opportunities to sell bo- soybeans at cash prices that we did not think that we would see several months ago. Right. And so if you can make some profitable soybean sales, there are opportunities to be doing that now. Uh, but if you're wanting to store and, and maybe, you know, uh, take a little bit of a, a, a chance on, on some on price soybeans, there could be really big payoffs, uh, looking out, you know, in the next couple of months.
0: Yeah and it, and it really comes back to the, the the idea that I think you came up with a while back this idea of having a, a portfolio of strategies and and thinking about allocating percentages or portions of your crop to the various strategies and you know this might be a year where you favor a little more unhedged uh soybean uh, storage than than a typical year um the odds would seem to be in your favor and uh um, you know, you, you might keep some of that on the corn side as well. I just don't think the odds are as good on the corn side. And so uh, um, recognize, I think the other thing to think about is recognize this is not a year to fall asleep, right? Yeah. Uh, maybe there never is a year to fall asleep. But if you think about uh, this market scenario, uh, you're going to want to pay close attention, Um We think relatively low risk here in the short run to hang on to some unhedged storage for both corn and soybeans, but you're going to want to pay close attention and if you need to, to make a move. So uh, keep that in mind going forward. So, well, that kind of wraps up our podcast for today. I want to encourage you to share the Purdue Commercial Ag Podcast with your friends and colleagues. And on behalf of my colleague, Nathan Thompson and the Purdue University Center for Commercial Agriculture, I'm Jim Minter. Thanks for listening.